Good morning, Masters College. Oh, hey, that's back in time, Masters University. Good morning. Well, this is our last week of chapel, and uh, we want to tune your heart towards the Christmas season, the Advent season. I do know that you're pushing hard to the finish line. I know the last week of class and the test and the papers are a challenge. I hope your testing and your exams and your projects go well. And uh, I hope also that maybe some of your professors will do for you what I did for my seminary class on Wednesday. I gave them a final to do, which will be this Wednesday. And that final was to take the three hours that you're in class with me, pick your favorite and most refreshing thing to do and go do it. Get refreshed, recover, take a picture, and send me an email, paragraph, describing what you did, how you felt, and with whom you did it. Do you like that one? It's a sabbatical. Yeah, we'll be passing around a petition that I'll... uh, give to your professors to invite them to, in like manner, do the same. You say, why do you do that? I teach a pastoral ministries class. And one of the realities about pastoral ministry, it never stops. So you have to learn to stop. You have to learn to capture seasons and windows of time that enable you to recover and refresh because ministry is compelling and sometimes unending. And so it really was meant to be strategic, not to just give those men a chance to breathe in the midst of all their final preparations for the end of the seminary semester, but it was meant to instruct them in a way that says, listen, sabbaticals matter, Sabbaths matter, taking time to refresh and recover and learning what that is, is important. It's important for you, and it's important for anyone who will serve the Lord and be involved in ministry. So I hope you'll find ways to gather some time to recover and refresh and also hope, you, hope you'll take some time to cue your heart, tune your heart to what this season represents. And I know that's a challenge, but this is the last time I'll have the opportunity to speak to you. So I want to encourage you today relative to what I'm going to call a Christ-like and compelling Christmas. Christ-like and compelling Christmas. I want to tune your heart to the Advent. Matter of fact, I have my once-a-year tie. This is a string of lights. You can't probably see it. It's red, but it's Christmas tree lights. It's a signal to say, hey, Christmas is here. The Advent is here. And by the way, university singers and orchestra, you were with us at Grace Church yesterday. You did a fabulous job. Thank you for what you did. I, I don't know whether you're in the room, but you did a tremendous job yesterday. Uh, Our president texted me after the service and said the music was heavenly and stunning. So be encouraged. And that was via live stream. So imagine if he would have been there in person. So be encouraged by that. And and Wesley Sunet, good to see you back. Playing. Yeah. We're really glad. I'm looking forward to when you can run up in front of these stands over here and lead us in cheering. I know it may be a while, but it's good to have you back, Wesley. 
All right, before we begin, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and here's the question I want you to talk about. What will make this the best Christmas break ever for you? What two or three things are necessary for it to be the best Christmas break ever? All right, take your Bible. Join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Best Christmas ever. My goal this morning is to arm you with some intentionality. This can be the best Christmas you've had ever. I don't know how you measure yours. I don't know what things have to happen in order for that to be a reality for you. But I want to offer you some biblical perspectives that I love to consider as it relates to Christ-like living Christ-like, acting Christ-like heart style. You know, we've spent this semester, this year we will dedicate it to Christ-likeness. Look, it's one thing to say I'm a Christian. It's another thing to reflect the reality of Christianity. One of the greatest uh, prohibitors or barriers to people believing the reality of what we proclaim is the lack of visibly being able to see it and to experience it. The reason I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 is because Peter is written to a group of people that have been dispersed by persecution. He wants to encourage them. He reminds them of who they are, what God has done for them. But then he also wants to commission them. Hey, in light of who you are, I want you to live this way. I want you to live in a way that recognizes what the world needs in light of who you really are and who God has made you to be. First Peter is written so that Christians will be Christians when it's not easy to be a Christian. Christians will look like Christ when it's not easy to look like Christ. Listen, for some of you going home, it's easy. You're going to walk into a home environment, a family, and it's going to be easy, but I don't know if it'll be true for you as it was for me, and I grew up in a Christian home, and I had Christian parents, and I had a Christian sister, and I had a Christian fellowship community that I would return to when I got home from school, but I always found it interestingly a challenge to kind of be who I wanted to be, because you fall back into old patterns of attitude and behavior and even activity. Sometimes it's like you go home and you kind of ratchet right back to who you were, the way other people view you. It kind of entices you to be the way you were, not the way you want to be, not the way you should be, but the way you were. I want to encourage you to focus on some things that will help you be who you should be, who, you, who I believe you would want to be. Christ-like. Today we're going to talk about a Christ-like heart. A compelling Christmas because you display a Christ-like heart. Wednesday, Dr. Varner's going to talk about Christ in the Old Testament to kind of stimulate you to some of the insights that are hopefully challenge your heart and equip your mind as you move forward to fellowship and worship over the holiday season. But today, I want to talk about a Christ-like heart, living out what you are in a way that's good for Him good for them, and good for you. I want you to have a Christmas this year that blesses God, blesses those around you, saved and unsaved alike, 
and blesses you too. And that's really what this passage has the potential to do. So let's read it together, and I'll highlight some things for you. And then I'm going to ask you to pray out of this passage as we come to a conclusion, as you prepare your heart for the Advent season and your time away. Verse 8, chapter 3. Verse 3 words. To sum up. Let me just pause there for a minute. To sum up what? To sum up the priority that I've been speaking about. I'm going to give you the bottom line. Finally, some of your Bibles will say finally. This is the apex, talos. This is the conclusion. This is the big ending. This is the final bottom line as to what you need to do with regard to who God has called you to be. I'm going to sum that up. What has he called us to be? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race, he says, to the people redeemed, chosen by God, sovereign grace, before the foundation of the world, love. I've chosen you to be a royal priesthood. Royal because you belong to the king. You're a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now watch the purpose clause that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a royal priest. Two things a priest would do. Number one, they were worshipers. They worshiped in the presence of God. They worshiped before God. You see that in verse 5 of chapter 2 when Peter says to the people of God, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you know what we are? We're worshipers. We are priests who offer acceptable spiritual worship to God. We give thanks. We give praise. We yield our life. The most reasonable service is a living sacrifice. We're a worshiper. But I want you to consider what else a priest is. A priest, pontifex is the Latin word from which you get pontiff, is a bridge builder. They're a representative. That's what the word Pontifex means bridge builder. What do you mean bridge builder? Someone who connects others to God. A priest represents God to people and represents people to God. We are worshipers and we are bridge builders. We are God connectors. Part of what I want to challenge you with as you go home is not only to worship during the Advent season, I want you to intentionally think about building bridges during the Advent season. You're going to be with people that don't know God. Represent God to them. And represent them to God. You're a priest. You're a representer. You're a bridge builder. How do you do that? By what you say. Look at what it says. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. The one who 
changed you, moved you from darkness into light, showed mercy to you. You once were not a people. You say to them, the mighty work of God, the mighty acts of God, the mighty realities of God, you tell them about God. People won't know about God in our culture from our culture. They'll know about God from you. Talk to people about the God who has saved you. And secondly, share your testimony with them. A priest proclaims his excellencies and his mercies. Listen, I think of one of the most under-leveraged assets you have as a Christian is your testimony. Hey, God changed me. Oh, I can't give you a world of apologetics maybe, but I can tell you what he's done for me. I used to be, but I am. I deserved, but he didn't give me what I deserved. I've experienced a life change, and I want you to know about it. Why? To sum up, to sum up is based on the behavior and the validating words of a priest that validates the message he professes. I want you to see something else in this text before we get to the content of the passage I want to encourage you from. Verse 11, chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. They wage war against your soul. So inwardly maintain purity because inward realities affect outward expressions. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles has to do with those not in the body of Christ, not in God's covenant family. They're not a part of the chosen nation. They're outside looking in. Keep your behavior excellent among those who don't know God. That's what you could put for Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. In other words, they think the life you live is actually destructive. It's destructive to the culture. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to those with whom you have to do. They would consider it wrong and destructive. Keep your behavior excellent among those who don't know God so that in the thing in which they slander you as an evildoer, they may on account of your... And I would look at this and circle it if it was my Bible. It is highlighted in mine. Your good deeds. On account of your good deeds, they may not believe what you're saying. They may think you're destructive. They may think that you're not a value or a benefit by what you believe and what you say, but show them by your good deeds as they observe them to the end that, verse 12, they might glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is the day that Jesus Christ returns. The day that he calls his people to himself. And we would call it the rapture. He returns, calls us to himself. Those who used to slander you and call you an evildoer, evil those who don't know God, on the day that Christ returns for his people, his chosen people, they glorify him. Let me tell you what this isn't. That it's not every knee bowing, 
every tongue confessing that Jesus is the Lord. It's not the praise that all will give at the end of time. This is God glorifying because those who didn't know God now know God and they're worshipers like you're a worshiper. They're giving glory to God because they've changed from someone who slanders, from someone who has no value for what God says and does and who you say you are, to one who will glorify God when Jesus returns for his people because they are now a part of his worshiping people. Now, let me tell you what Peter's saying. With what you say, And what you do to validate what you say, people on the outside are going to become people on the inside. People who slandered are now going to be worshipers like you're a worshiper because of what you say about who he is, what he's done for you, and how you've put what you say, listen to me, on display. Because the the thing most harmful in our culture today is Christians who say but don't display. Validating the gospel by how we live is critically important to building bridges to people who don't know God. To sum up, is the bottom line on the validating heart style that is a compelling witness that gives glory to God, brings the gospel to them, and listen to this, it'll bring good to you. Look at verse 8 now to sum up. To sum up what? That. Verse 8 To sum up chapter 3, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Did you see the word for? The ground or reason you are to put on to display these attitudes, this heart style, is not just to validate the gospel to them and to bring glory to God, it's to bring good to you. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Let me tell you what Peter's saying. Live this way. Have these attitudes. Put this on display. It'll validate for them the truth of what you say, and it'll invite the blessing of God, the inheritance blessing of God toward those whom as a father he desires to bless. Listen, here's something true. God, your father, has a desire to bless your life. Not just when you get to heaven. But now, he's a father who wants to bring blessing into your life now. Remember Luke chapter 15 when the older brother 
was really irritated because the younger brother who played poorly and lived badly came home and he was blessed with a feast and all of the celebratory festival gathering. And remember what he said? He's, he's irritated. Remember what the father said to him? Hey, everything I have is yours to enjoy. Right now, you don't have to collect the inheritance to enjoy the benefits of what I have. Now, my Father is in heaven. I have been the inheritor of his things. But before I inherited his things, I was privileged to enjoy what he had. As a junior in high school, I would leave high school at 3.10. I would be to the airfield by 4 o'clock. By 4.30, I'd be airborne in my father's airplane. I'd fly around southern New Jersey. I'd fly over the house. I'd fly wherever I wanted to go, come back, land, park the airplane, and drive home. Is that because I owned an airplane? No. He owned an airplane, and I was his son. And the blessings that I enjoyed were the product of the relationship I had and the tenor of that relationship. I want you to think about this. How much does God have? Is there anything that he doesn't have? No. Is there a desire in his heart to bless those he loves like a father his children? Yes. You were called to Christ to inherit a blessing, not just future tense, but present tense. Act in a way that invites the blessing of God, which is why it goes on to say, chapter 9, you were called, or verse chapter 3 rather, verse 9, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now verse 10, a second for another ground or reason to behave in this way, Christ-like attitudes, verse 10, for let him or her who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking guile, let him turn away from evil, bad behavior, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, The second encouraging and motivating promise of this passage is you want to receive blessing and you want to enjoy good days. Do you want to have a life that you would love? If you want to love life and see good days, how many of us want to do that? All of us want to do that. We don't want to just have a great Christmas break. We want to experience a life we're going to love. What's required for that? This. A heart style that's like Christ, a tongue that reflects the heart of Christ, a desire to do good in honor of Christ. And then fourthly, or the third four rather, verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What kind of evil? attitudinal wrong, behavioral and destructive injurious wrong, and tongue wrong, talk wrong. Verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. 
God answers prayer. God blesses. God does good to those rightly related to him and those who rightly reflect him. The four gives you compelling consequences. To sum up, these things matter. They matter to God. They matter to people because it validates what you say. It's the bottom line. And it invites the blessing of God, a life you're going to love, good days, and allows God to answer prayers rather than do this to you. You want to have a great Christmas? Have a Christ-like Christmas. You want to have a great Christmas? Have a compelling Christmas. What do you mean compelling? By acting, living, and talking in such a way that people are compelled to consider who he is and what he does. That's a great Christmas. So let me highlight these things. I'm going to ask you some questions, and then I'm going to let you pray as a consequence of these considerations in order to invite the Lord to help you do these summary and significant things. By the way, these are all attitudinal things. Do you get to what comes out of your mouth, which reflects your heart? This is the heart style of a Christian, the defining bottom line heart style of a Christian, a Christ-like compelling heart that validates the truth of what you confess and invites the blessing and benefit of the Father upon your life. Let all be, number one, harmonious. A heart that validates the gospel, glorifies God, and a heart that brings good to you is a harmonious heart. This is the only time in the New Testament this word harmonious is used. Homo phronos, mind, one-minded. One-hearted, one-minded has to do with the idea of being someone who tries to get along doesn't mean you think the same as everybody else thinks. It means you want to get along. This is not making a person think the same. It's cultivating and displaying a spirit that leads to oneness of mind and heart. It promotes common ground and agreement. Harmonious is not a divisive person. Gunazzo is the antonym, somebody who complains, somebody who criticizes, somebody who is combative, somebody who debates, somebody who's argumentative. To sum up, I want you to be, Peter says, as a compelling witness who invites the blessing of God and validates the gospel, I want you to be harmonious. I don't want you to argue. I don't want you to debate. I want you to find common ground. It's not that you're not going to disagree with the people that you go home to or back to your friends and family. There'll be many opportunities for you to plant the flag and have a debate, especially if you've learned something and they don't know what you know or they don't believe what you believe. You plant that flag. You go toe-to-toe. This says be harmonious. Be a bridge builder who gets along not divisive, not critical. A harmonious heart is an agreeable heart. I don't mean you don't stand for anything. This is not trading the truth. This is how you stand in the truth. Attitudinally, Christ-like, agreeable, seeking common ground. Number two, 
sympathetic, sympathos. Pathos is to feel, sim, feel with. A sympathetic heart. This is a heart that listens and cares. You put yourself in their shoes. When you have sympathy with somebody, you try to crawl into their skin and then identify with them. This is saying, I care. I, I seek to understand. I want to understand. When you go home this Christmas, cultivate a sympathetic heart. I seek to understand before I want to be understood. I really care. Number three, a friendly heart. Brotherly is Philadelphos. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Adelphos, one born of the same womb. Philos, affection. This idea has to do with an attitude that is warm, kind, and prioritizes people as if they're valuable, like you care. I value you. You matter to me. We're family. A friendly heart. Affectionate. This is the heart attitude of personal warmth and affection you can feel. Let me tell you what this word involves. Pursuing and engaging. Communicating and caring to connect. It's making people feel like they have worth and value. You matter to me. Number four, a tender heart. A tender heart. It says in your Bible, at least mine, kind-hearted. Some of yours says good-hearted. It's used two times in the New Testament. Splognos, which is your intestines, where you feel. That's the word for heart, your innards. It's a good one. It's a tender one. It's a heart, listen to me, that stops to remedy the needs of somebody else. Two places it's used. One is in Luke chapter 10 for the Good Samaritan. We don't have time to tell the story today. You know the story. The Good Samaritan saw the man in his condition, said, I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care what it costs. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm, I don't care where I'm going. I don't care at what risk this creates for me. I'm stopping and I'm helping. The Good Samaritan, the text says in Luke chapter 10, was moved with, there it's translated, compassion. Usplagnon means to stop to remedy the needs of someone in distress. It's considering the needs of others as more important than yourself, stopping and helping. The other place it's used is in Luke chapter 15 for the father of the prodigal. When the prodigal comes home deserving nothing, the father sees his son coming home and he's moved with usplagnon, compassion. And he races to meet him to forgive him. Here's a Christ-like heart. You stop to remedy and you race to reconcile. A God-honoring heart, a Christ-like heart, 
a heart that invites the blessing of God, a heart that validates the gospel of God, a heart that glorifies God is a heart that says, hey, I see what you need, I'm stopping. I know we're disconnected. You have injured me, but I'm racing to reconcile this relationship. Some of you have some relationships to reconcile. A Christ-like heart is proactive in pursuing the people that need forgiveness. It's a, a good heart is a heart that has a desire for healing. It extends meaningful mercy and incorporates the attitude which wants to give and love when giving and love are not deserved. That's the whole point of the Good Samaritan. This guy is not like me. Matter of fact, this guy's people hate people like me. I'm going to help him anyway. This person has hurt me. I'm going to pursue them to reconcile any way. It's a tender heart. It's a races to reconcile and stop to remedy heart. Fourthly, or fifthly, it's a humble heart. Back to the text, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. It's a sweet word. It's the word mind with the word lowly. You see it in Asian culture when the head goes down on a lowly gesture. It's a mindset of humility. It's a deferring. Sometimes it's reflected in a bow if it's cultural that way, but in essence, it's courteous. It's deferring. It considers others as first. A humble heart is you go first heart. You have the first one. A humble heart is I'm thankful for everything. I'm not demanding anything. This is an attitude that sees others as more important than yourself. It considers their needs ahead of your needs. It defers. It's not selfish. It's humble. Seventh, or sixth rather, a Christ-like heart. Really, this is the summation of it all, but I wanted to pointedly attach this next statement to Christ-like because it is a reflection of what he did, which is what, a, what a, should be a reflection of what we are. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, hurt for hurt, or insult, which is abusive speech, for insult but giving a blessing instead. That's Christ-like. If you want to know what a Christian is at their essence, instead of returning evil for evil, I'm giving a blessing instead. The word blessing means to pray, ulageo, to speak well of someone, to bless them in prayer, and to find something good to applaud in them. Christ-like. You mean when somebody's hard on me, somebody's hurtful to me, somebody's insulting and abusive to me, you mean then do that? Pray a blessing on them? Not cursing them, not abusing them, blessing them. Speaking a good word. You know what that is? That's Christ-like. 
and that is alien to our culture, and that's alien to anybody who doesn't know Christ. Christ like. Look at verse 21, chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, walk like he walked. How would that be? Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he's not guilty of bad behavior at all. Verse 23, and while being reviled, mistreated, abused, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Graciously enduring what he didn't deserve, but kept, it's called a customary imperfect, this was his habit, he just kept doing this, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He tenaciously kept trusting his father to make it right. While he was mistreated, he didn't respond in kind. He entrusted in prayer his concerns, his needs, and that circumstance to God who judges righteously. And then he endured suffering on behalf of the ones that were reviling, harming, Injuring. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Now you know that's the gospel. Jesus taking what we deserve, taking it all so that we would not live in the way we used to live, but we would live in a way that was right. But you know, he did that for us when we were his enemies. Christ-like is doing good to those who are not doing good to us. It's blessing those, even those suffering, so that they can be benefited and blessed. Jesus is the, the ultimate prototype of that, and we're to walk like he walked. Number six, as you go home this holiday, you're going to have opportunities where people are going to say and do things that hurt. Don't respond in kind. Bless them. Say good to them. And allow the God who is good to bless you. For you, you were called to an inherited blessing. You want to love life and see good days? Refrain your lips from speaking evil. Evil is harsh, hurtful, and injurious in this context. Don't do that. Don't speak guile, which is a word for weapon. Don't use your words like a weapon. Deceitful, manipulative, hurtful. Turn away from hurtful things. Do good. Pursue peace. And allow God to do in you what he wants to do, which is bring glory to him validate the gospel for them and bring blessing upon your life to those God wants to bless who honor him with a Christ-like heart. So, my encouragement, I know where you're going. You're going home or you're going someplace for the holidays. You're going to be around people who need a bridge to God. Do that by what you say, 
Do that by what you do. And do that by how you do it. That's a Christ-like and compelling Christmas. It compels them to reconsider. And it compels him on his own promise to bless you in ways you couldn't imagine. To sum up, do that. I want to wrap this up this morning before the chapel band comes to lead us in worship again. I want you to take a few minutes with the people around you, and this is what I want you to ask or pray about. What area is most challenging to me as I go home? What area is most challenging to me? That's what you're going to share. And then I want you to pray for one another. Thinking about this, is the words that come out of my mouth, it's my gospel boldness, or it's the attitudes I display. Which one of these things is critical? And I'm inclined to potentially not get it right, and I want to get it right. So I want you to share that and then pray for each other, and then we'll close. Father, we thank you this morning that when you called us to be your people, unique, it was uniqueness to be the display of the proclamation of excellent things about you. To be a witness, to be a priest who worships with words and validates with lifestyle. About your grace in our life, your mercy toward us. We're to build bridges by what we say and what we display. And Lord, we're to do so in a way that invites not only honor for you, but blessing for us. Lord, I pray for these men and women as they head to various places, both here and around the world, that they'll have a compelling Christmas. It'll cause people who don't believe to reconsider. Not because of necessarily just what they hear, but the good deeds and the heart style they see. I pray that you would make these young men and women what they cannot be without your compelling presence in their life. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. Allow them to walk inwardly in a way that allows them to live outwardly. I pray that you would protect them, and I pray that you would leverage them. And Lord, I pray you'd bless them. Thank you for Jesus who showed us the way. Help us to walk like him. We want to love life. We ask it in Jesus' name.